0: Hello and welcome to Playback Daily. It's Thursday the 22nd of February. I'm Louise Herity and here's some of what's coming up.
1: You know, I've just just been reading books all my life. There's no way that I would be here talking to you now as a Booker Prize winner had I not been reading books all my life. It just would not be possible.
2: And forget about your phone. Forget about everything else. And you get such a sense of achievement then when you do actually find it. Because as I say, if your eyes aren't open, you're never going to find it. And it's such a gem of Irish nature to look for this time of
3: year. My understanding is that they can individually give that consent. If they want to, they can waive Mm. their rights um, to this. Um, But you're right to point out the wider considerations, and the wider considerations are really important from top to bottom of any organization. This isn't just the rights of senior people.
0: Well, this Saturday, February 24th, is Ireland Reads Day. It's designed to encourage people to increase the amount they read and to celebrate, libraries all over the country will be holding events for children and adults. Morning Ireland reporter Ethna Dodd went to Stillorgan in Dublin to ask young adults whether or not they use the library.
4: When was the last time you read a book? Two weeks ago. And why did make you go to the library?
5: Um, nothing really, I don't know. Like, I just don't really like the... It's too quiet for me.
4: How are you getting your books
6: then?
5: I just go to like Easton's or something.
6: So you, even though libraries offer the books for free, yeah. wouldn't get you into one?
5: No.
1: One of my friends only started going to go into a library and she was like, it's great. She was like, it's borrow the books all the time, but I bought this one.
4: And what to get you into the library more, do you think?
1: Um, More
3: time, free time.
4: <laughs> do you ever get books from the library? Uh, I used to, but I buy them now. And if you were a kid, did you use it more then? Definitely, because my parents made me go. When was the last book you read?
7: I finished a book... Two days ago.
4: Did you go to the library to get your books? Or how do you get them?
7: My school library, yeah. Uh, no like a library I of school, not really.
4: What would get me back into a library? Mmm. I don't know. I think if they had more of a social media presence, you know, like local libraries and, you know, like they had like TikTok accounts and things like that, I think it would encourage younger people to, to come back to them. Where do you get your books from? Do you buy them? Are they online? The library usually. Do you a lot of study in the library so it would be I just Happen to be there and then I get them there. Why do you think you're the first person i met who actually gets them from the library? What, what makes you different? I don't know.
5: I think the libraries are just kind of not as popular anymore. When was the last book you read? Probably like primary school. And I'm in college now, so <laughs> like, it's probably not the best. I like books, but like I just don't have time.
4: So I'm assuming you'd never go to a library. I was in the library today, actually, but just to study, not to read. And when you're done with college, is that the end for you and libraries, do you reckon as well?
3: <laughs> Hope so. <laughs>
8: uh, I'm joined now by Paul Lynch, winner of last year's Booker, Booker Prize for Profit song. Paul, good morning.
1: Good morning, Mary. How are
8: you doing? I, I'm, I'm chuckling there at that, what I was listening to on, on the Vox Pop. Uh, somebody who hasn't read a book since primary school. Um, bit of a job of work to do. And, and I should say you're, you're an ambassador for, for Ireland Reads. Is there a job of work to be done to, to get people back into using the libraries as much as I thought they did, certainly uh, when I was in, in, in primary and secondary school?
7: Well, we're
1: very fortunate here that we actually have such a strong library system. In the UK, they've been closing libraries down en masse. Hundreds of them have been closed down. But, you know, I think the Ireland Reads campaign is is just so important and necessary because as a society, we should just never take reading for granted. Mm -hmm. And the world is going through great changes. Technology is obviously great, but it's, it's also a disruptor to thought. And I think it has had a profound impact on reading, concentration and our smartphones just they're poking into thought all day long and you know all all, you know often too the problem with social media is that it's designed to reflect a version of yourself back to you but when you read a book whether it's non-fiction or fiction you're inviting the world in and i i I believe that we should invite the world in now more than ever when we read fiction for instance the inner lives of others becomes known. Um, fiction in particular, it's a simulation. It's a virtual reality machine that allows us to experience other worlds, other times, other languages, other peoples. And it, it gives us new eyes to see the world. And so when you read a great writer for those eight hours or ten hours it takes to read a book, you're seeing the world through the eyes of that writer. And there's really true wisdom to be gained from that. So like, if you're reading Virginia Woolf or Mary Costello or Sebastian Barry you have an opportunity to see the world through their eyes. Mm,
8: Our Paul Lynch indeed. But isn't that the challenge, to lift your head out of social media and bury it in a book? Do you read a, a little or a lot every day?
1: I read a lot. Um, mm. But I mean, I know this. It's a challenge for me too. I, I've, I've actually heard of somebody once putting their, their book, they bought a safe and they put their book in a safe and they would lock the safe and they would sit down and read. And here's the thing about that. I mean, for a lot of people, this there's, there's, the phone has sort of, Atomized concentration. But I think that if you put the phone away for even 20 minutes, 30 minutes, put it in another room, turn it off and sit down with a book, you can train your concentration back. You can get yourself back into that sort of reading habit. And just even 20 minutes a day, 30 minutes a day is will make a huge difference.
8: And I suppose it's never too soon to open the world of books to children, to read to oh, them, my- to bring them to the library, to encourage them when they can to read alone.
1: I think it's I think it's just vital, isn't it? I mean, like, I think that as a society, a society that reads is self-aware, and that's really more more important than ever in this in this day and age. But that starts with children. It starts with reading reading them stories when when they're really small. Taking to the libraries, my kids are my kids are in the library and they go all the time and they get books out all the time, and that's just part of their world now. And and I, I could I actually couldn't imagine any other way. Is it?
8: Essential, do you think, to to become a Paul Lynch, to win a Booker, uh, that you are reading, reading extensively, and reading from a very young age. That the, that 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 the practice, if you like, of reading constantly is ingrained from a young age.
1: I always tell writers who are coming through that reading is more important than writing because what you you can only write what you've actually read, what you've absorbed through through the years. And, you know, when I when I was a kid, my parents got me a job in a bookshop when I was 11. And it sounds like child labor now looking back at it. But actually, it was just a very pleasant thing. And and they got me that job so that I could just read more books because I had. Read the house dry, read the library dry. And, you know, and I started reading Jack Hagen's thrillers when I was 11. And that was that was the gate, my gateway drug mm-hmm. into adult fiction. And, you know, I've just just been reading books all my life. There's no way that I would be here talking to you now as a Booker Prize winner mm-hmm. had I not been reading books all my life. It just would not be possible.
0: Author and winner of last year's Booker Prize for Profit song, Paul Lynch on Morning Ireland today. Sticking with the theme of books and reading, Claire Byrne was joined by Waterford librarians Jenny Lockran and Tracy McEnany to get some of their recommendations. Thank you. Very Lovely much. to see
9: you here. We just wanted to pick your brains today. Like, what are you, what are you reading? What have you read? What would you recommend? Because we were talking about this on the program um, with Brian O'Connell when he was reporting on the mobile libraries. Mm-hmm. You can get into a bit of a panic if you don't have your next book lined up if you're coming to the end of the one that you're reading uh, at the moment. Now we're Talking about books you love, and we're starting with a bit of love at the beginning here, Jenny, because your first suggestion is Romantic Comedy. That's what it's called, it's romantic, called romantic Comedy.
5: Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. And one of Curtis Sittenfeld's earlier books, American Wife, it's one of my favourite ever books. I read that. Yeah, it really good. it stays with you for a long, long yeah. time. And like, she's a brilliant author. This one, Romantic Comedy. It tells the story of Sally Mills, who's disillusioned with love and she's a 30 something. She's very successful. She's a TV comedy writer with a TV show called The Night Owls. And it's a fictionalised version of Saturday Night Live. And she's very cynical. She sees this trend emerging where cele- with, with celebrities, where glamorous, beautiful, accomplished women are becoming romantically involved with average looking, mediocre men. And she writes a sketch for the TV show poking fun at this and underscoring how likely it is that the reverse would ever happen or how unlikely it is that the reverse would ever happen and it becomes a hit and it becomes viral all over the world. Then she's, Sally is assigned to work with a new guest host uh, Noah who is a pop sensation with a history of dating models and they hit it off. Ah. Yes.
9: OK and we go from there. Yeah. I think we'll have to put up a list of these books because afterwards we always get asked uh, what did we mention on the show and I think that would be on a lot of people's lists to read. Now, not to be done on the uh, romance front, Tracy, you have two here. One examines the issue of friendship, one uh, documents the breakup of a relationship from the male point of view, and you enjoyed both of these a lot.
10: Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Seven. This is her fifth adult book. Really, oh, a very, very good book. Really enjoyed it. Um, it was out since um, 2023, it was published. Uh, the Paramount have just bought the film rights to this for two million and the author is going to write the script. But the book is about Sam Masser and Sadie Green. Um, The book starts in the late 80s. They meet in the hospital. Sam has just lost his mother in a car accident. Sadie is in visiting her sixth sister. Uh, Sam spends all his time playing video games in the day room and the nurse says, will you go in there, Sadie, and talk to him, see if he'll open up, play a few games, see what happens. Uh, So she does. Friendship develops. But of course, a misunderstanding, they fall out. They don't see each other for about eight years. So they meet again when they're 19. And they meet just by accident at a train station. And Sam sees Sadie, but he doesn't know whether to go over to her or not. But anyway, the friendship starts again. Um, To make a long story short, they make... Uh, work together creating video games so loads of information about video games Mm. you will want to play video games after this book very very good and don't let video games put you off because when I heard that I thought oh no but it is a story about friendship Uh, fallouts, mistrust, success, jealousy, losing it all, but very, very good. And a previous book by this author is The Story Life of A.J. Frickery. And that's one of my favourite books. I love that book.
9: That's Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which sounds a little like One Day.
10: I suppose it does because they do come back and forth, you know. Mm-hmm. And a lot did of did you watch? Outs. Did you watch one day on Netflix? I, no, I didn't. But I read the book many years ago. So it, did I. Yeah, I could and barely, I love that. Barely yeah. remember it when I Save
9: went to watch the yeah, series. Watch it. but yeah, it's so am I. so am I. It's, it's very good. Well worth a watch. And fifteen million odd people have watched it mm. since ah, it was released. Cool oh, yeah, mm-hmm. huge. Uh, the other one then is uh, good material by Dolly Alderton.
10: Yep, I would heard a lot about her, um, and I don't like books or films about people splitting up. No, just don't not go for there. Oh, no, not for me. I hate it. Um, but this is book about, is about heartbreak, but very funny in parts because he's a comedian. Um, it's told from the man's point of view. Andy, he's 35, he's a comedian, split up from his girlfriend, Jen, of three years, nine months, 29 days. Can't understand why, what happened. And uh, he's living on his, French ca- his friend's couch. Uh, his friend's wife is good friends with Jen. So you can imagine there's that dynamic going on. And... Um, But for the whole, most of the book, 90% of the book is Andy's side. But then, very cleverly, they have a chapter on Jen's side and that puts closure to a lot of the questions that you have. Mm. And Dolly Alderton, a lot of people wouldn't know her because she would have been the Sunday Times agony aunt. Agony aunt,
9: yeah, the Dear Dolly column. So there's always three or four sides to every story, isn't there? Mm-hmm. So we're getting a look at perhaps a, a less visited side. I love this next one, Jenny, because we're all, this is what happens when you're talking about books with your, mm. your friends. You get a recommendation, somebody might be reading something in your presence and that's how you came across this one.
5: Yeah, so the next book I want to talk about is called A Child Alone with Strangers by Philip Frascassi and I didn't know anything about this author and my lovely colleague Paula was reading it and she was gasping and she was screaming and she was putting the book down and she was rushing off for her tea break and uh, I grabbed it off her as soon as she was fi- had finished it and it's a horror story. It's ah, very much a horror <laughs> story. It's very dark, <laughs> it's very thrilling. Uh, it starts very slowly with Henry, a young boy who's been orphaned after an accident and he's in a coma and when he wakes up from a coma, he can see people's feelings and hear their thoughts. And this is frightening but also very reassuring because he now lives with his aunt and uncle who love him very much. So he can sense this. But then he's kidnapped and he's held prisoner in a remote farmhouse surrounded by miles of forest. And he finds himself connecting with a strange force living in the woods. There's a lot of violence and creepy things happen in this you love rundown farm. It's escapism. This your thing? <laughs> it's escapism. <laughs> and you know, as we would expect, the FBI get involved, there's a big search going on and things are going from bad to worse for the kidnappers and for Henry and remains to see who, if anyone, is going to survive What's the creature he's connected with? What does it really want? It's full of twists and turns. And like I have to say, there are gruesome scenes. It's old school horror, but it has monsters of the human and the non-human kind. So really now, fans of Stephen King, Grady Hendrix, A Child Alone with Strangers by Philip Frascassi, And it's a big one. It's Mm -hmm. a big, long book. Okay,
9: it's a big, long book, but you very much enjoyed that. Yes. That says a lot about you. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now,
10: after that, so we have, uh, Tracy, a lovely easy read here. This is Pineapple Street by Jenny Jackson. It's out on paperback just since the 15th of February. Um, It's about, it's a debut novel. It's about a wealthy Stockton family, Tilden Chip. They're the parents. They want to downsize from their mansion to a penthouse. So you can imagine plenty of books. Um, So Cord and the daughter-in-law, Sasha, move into the mansion. Now, she never signed a prenup. So the uh, the younger sister and the older sister think she's a total a gold digger um and um Sasha doesn't feel accepted into this family at all you can imagine the tension around the the dinner table and uh, then they have Darley, that's the eldest uh, daughter she followed her heart she gave up her inheritance um, her marriage looks perfect she's married to a, a high flyer uh, you know children a fabulous house has it all does she really and then you have the youngest Georgina she's a trust fund baby she's working in a non-profit so she struggles with that guilt and uh, she's fallen in love with someone she ha- shouldn't it reminds me of it's been compared to succession it reminds me a bit like Gossip Girls um, but I, it's an easy read and I would totally recommend it OK so this is uh, Pineapple
9: Street by Jenny Jackson which sounds like a great bit of escapism we're coming now to a debut author Jenny and this is another Jenny Jenny Hollander Jenny
5: Hollander and like we were always saying don't judge a book by its cover but I chose this book by its title it's got a great title it's called Everyone Who Can Forgive Me is Dead Brilliant uh, <laughs> dead already <laughs> it's very promising it's a debut novel I really would look forward more from this author. So nine years ago the main character Charlie's life changed forever. On Christmas Eve her elite graduate school was the site of a chilling attack and several of her classmates died. She's moved on with her life and several years later there's a film being made about the events but her Charlie's dark past threatens to crash into her present. She was called a witness at the time when it happened but she knows much more than that. Mm. And it's an, she's an unreliable narrator and I love an unreliable narrator in a story it keeps oh, me going, that. it keeps like, me guessing um,
9: Yellow Face
5: was the yeah. most recent yeah. case of that I've come across mm-hmm. it just yeah. makes it so interesting and this has flashback scenes and there's little nuggets of information and I was reading it and it was a quick read but I was tempted to skip ahead and I didn't but it's smart writing style and it's a very very mm. excellent debut You can't trust yourself when you're reading no. it that no. your judgments are right yeah.
9: So that's Everyone Who Can Forgive Me Is Dead by Jenny mm. Hollander. Now crime of course and we've spoken about this in the past Tracy it's the, one of the most popular genres borrowed I know from the library you've two murder mysteries
10: for us now set in Ireland which well, you think ha- people should check out. Yes I have Carla by Colin Walsh. This is a 2022 I was late to the party with this. I sometimes don't trust reviews because you have to really go out and read the book yourself and see what you think and something we might say something here on this on this fabulous radio show but you might say oh, what are they talking about mm-hmm. and then you we might disagree with you so it's but book Book clubs are great for that, Claire. Book clubs oh, are great yeah. and
9: librarians are great for this. Oh, so that's totally. why you're here. Oh,
10: yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're the best. Uh, 2022, anyway. Uh, it's read on large print. It's by Carla. It's by Colin Walsh. Uh, she disappears carl disappears from a small town the west coast of ireland i think it's kinloch in 2020 in 2003 uh, 15 years later the human remains are found and uh, two more girls have gone missing now the story is told by helen joe and mush who were friends with carla back in 2020 2020- 2003, I should say. So it goes back and forth to the present and the past. Definitely recommend this book. And the reviews were totally right on this book because everybody said when this book came out, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. I just hadn't got around to reading it. Mm -hmm. Now, another one I loved. Now, Corkonians. I love a bit of Cork, right? So A Lesson in Malice by Catherine Kerwin. It's a murder set in UCC. Um, Now, Catherine Kerwin, she's a Cork-based solicitor anyway. So, but you're really... Ah, it's it's fantastic. You know, you're taken around the streets of Cork, you're taken into UCC. Uh, she's invited to attend, um, give a talk at this, at the college. She doesn't really know why she's invited to attend um, because all the rest of them are much more high, highbrow. Uh, then she's invited to attend the exclusive dinner in the college with the president in the president's private dining room. Uh, three, uh, but three days later, a body is found. She is a suspect, but so is everybody else at the dinner. And one last one, another Irish author I have to get in. K Misha. Now this is our and whale so it's who am I and K Misha It's by John Johnston Q and it's based on the factual events uh, from a British Armourish, a British Armish army sergeant in Kilmainham in um, Easter week in oh. 1916. OK, so let's run through uh, those selections
9: again. "Calla" by J- Colin Walsh. We've A Lesson in Malice by Catherine Kerwin And Kay Misha's book is called? It Kay Misha. by John Johnston Coyote. Who am I? Mm-hmm. Uh, right, now I want to mention as well, or you would like to mention, I know, Ireland Reads, which
10: is this weekend. What's all that about? Ireland Reads is taking place this weekend. It's, go on to the website, irelandreads.ie. You'll see all the suggestions um, of what to read. Um, you'll see a uh, lots of events happening in your local library. And again, we would just encourage everybody to stretch out whatever you want whether it's a book a magazine um, you know or listening to the audiobooks and uh, read on the 24th Mm. but another good one we just uh, if you have the time it's Cathy Sweeney we love Cathy Sweeney. She's written um, short stories, modern times. She's brought out this fantastic book, Breakdown. Um, you'll see it in all the bookshops and libraries, of course, but it's on the top of the list. And it's about a woman that we can totally relate to. Gets up one day, leaves the husband in the bed, the two children in the bed, walks out. Does she come
5: back or does she not? Breakdown. Very good, Cathy Sweeney.
9: Okay, that's hotly tipped Mm -hmm. as well. What have you got there in front of you, Um, Jenny? I have
5: have some children's books and um, one of them I have here for me is a series I came across, Would You Rather... And these are by Camilla Della Boye, I think it is pronounced. But it deals with everything from Would You Rather Dine With A Dung Beetle or Have Lunch With A Maggot. And I'm always looking for things that will get children off screens into the books. So and yeah. my children are following these very annoying YouTubers. And they're doing this Would You Rather, Would You Rather. Now, these books are not nothing to do with those YouTubers, but they've tapped into the same thing. They pose great questions and the choices have no wrong answer. Children learn about science and nature. They're explored through fun scenarios. Would you rather have teeth like a T-Rex or armour like an ankylosaurus and uh, they're great and they're really getting into we it. We play I'm that game so yeah. it would be
9: good to have a bit of yeah, inspiration really, really for those questions because you run out
5: pretty quickly. And By far my favourite children book I've read the last year is called The Silver Road by Sinead O'Hart. Um, it's kind of aimed for reading for age 10 upwards. We listen to it together as a family. Um, we listened to it on Box and now my children have me rereading it to them so real good sign hit. and like if you're looking for a book to buy it costs about 10 euros it's in all of the good bookshops it won all of the awards last year it's a stunning book it has myth it has magic but also has misery in school from a bully so there's your fantasy there's your reality I loved it featured this really lovely intergenerational story between the main character and some older people she knows and you know so she's given a stone by a frost giant and swept into a adventure there's a magical silver road that runs all through Ireland and children like I'm not going to give any spoilers but I love it and children love it when children save the day like the silver road by Sinead Heart, it should be in every house. The I silver road silver okay road. so
9: we're going to put up a list of uh, these books on our social media channels I'll do it myself on Instagram when I get around to it a little <laughs> bit later on but I always get asked so I'll make sure to do that
0: plenty to keep you and the children going there ahead of Ireland. Reads Day on Saturday and that was Jenny Loughran and Tracy McEnany from Waterford Library on Today with Claire Byrne. Mm-hmm. Soprano Sinead Campbell-Wallace joined Oliver Callan in studio this morning to talk about her upcoming show at the Bordgosh Energy Theatre. Salome, or is it Salome? Salome, Salome. You, whatever, you said Salome take, Whatever
6: takes that. your fancy <laughs> So um, you are the title role The title role Yes, Very yes. Good. In
11: Strauss's uh, Is it yeah. the Oscar Wilde He, he bases it's, on Oscar Wilde Yes Wilde's it's
6: kid. the Oscar Wilde play it's, it's pretty much the play Word for word Obviously translated into German uh, yes. But yeah It is yeah, It's the Oscar Wilde play so. so the whole thing Will be sung in German Sung in German Yes sung in German um, But it is the play So it's the play Is about this uh, young girl mm-hmm. 14 or 15 years of age Called Salome Who Who um, Lives under very sort of oppressive circumstances. She's got a very overbearing mother. Kind of like, actually in this production, almost like (laughs) Irish mammy type. (laughs) And and then this very nasty stepfather who is Herod, of course, because it's a biblical story. Mm -hmm. And Herod uh, has John the Baptist imprisoned. Mm -hmm. And Salome sees him and falls in love with him on sight. And demands that he kiss her. And he rebuffs and rebuffs her and says He's no, no I'm a interest. man of I'm, I'm, you know I'm spreading the word of Jesus this new you know guy who's on the scene and who's turning water into wine etc etc and uh, she gets so annoyed that um, she orders Herod to chop his head off and she spends, Very demanding. <laughs> she spends the last 20 minutes of the opera singing a duet more or less to a head. <laughs> uh, the head of John the Baptist um, so it's uh, yeah it's pretty dramatic and pretty hard it, it gives a whole new um, you know that phrase um, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned oh for sure so she's the embodiment of that I think yes, yes.
11: how are you fitting into that role
6: fits me like a glove <laughs> I'm shocked
11: I'm shocked
6: <laughs> no it's a it's, it's an absolute it's a role I've wanted to do forever you know and uh the time was just right for me now to do it it's a very dramatic role it's it's the most dramatic uh, and demanding thing i've ever done yeah definitely and emotionally psychologically you know it's just it's massive like it's a, it's a challenge big time um, you have to dance at some at some <sighs> point. I do, yes. So I made the mistake. Well, it wasn't a mistake, but when I spoke to Bruno Ravella, our wonderful director, mm-hmm. last year about this piece, um, so basically in the middle of the opera, there's a nine-minute orchestral interlude, which is the dance, Salome's dance of the seven veils, yes. and I happened to mention that. Oh, I used to dance like when I was younger, and and uh, he said, oh, well, Okay, um, yeah, well, maybe, you know. So I kind of thought that I'd probably be on stage with dancers, sort of maybe doing a little number yes, and, you know, be then some leaving kind of dance. them to it. So. But um, as it turns out, no, I am doing the nine-minute dance alone on stage. So, and I'm not a dancer, but I'm only dancing. It's only dancing. There's, it's there's only no, dancing. no it's bit. just dancing for nine minutes, and uh, it's with wonderful choreographer Liz Roach. Um, so, we're we've we've created something, and uh, I've been in training, and I'm you know amazing, uh, but also challenging. Yes, in the so middle it's of a the opera,
11: big big production, and you have yes. loads to do. And yes, the clip actually, of the dances of the seven. Dance of the Seven Veils so there you'll, you'll be alone on stage for
6: how long? With, with Herod, with my awful stepfather who's, who was sort of very lasciviously watching me do this dance Dance of Seduction <laughs>
11: They're not dancing, you're there on your <laughs> no,
6: own No, I'm, I'm the one dancing <laughs> okay,
11: yeah. That's going to be quite a moment
6: Yes, it is
11: <laughs> uh, look, Tell us about your career uh, because you took a break from performing I think at one stage yes. so what, what was your career like before that break?
6: So I basically after school, I started studying psychology in Trinity. That's what I sort of started doing. I had had singing lessons. All up through secondary school yeah. and um, then I was sort of doing the psychology which I really enjoyed but there was a lot of maths involved, statistics and that wasn't really my cup of tea. Mm. And Surprised my sing- in psychology. Yeah. <laughs> I know, yeah, you wouldn't think <laughs> you it think, would you, no. but anyway. You'd be scratching um, your chin for the afternoon. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but my singing teacher at the time said, you know, why don't you do a performance degree? And at the time I didn't even know that there was such a thing as a performance degree. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I did. So I uh, did the performance degree as was then the DIT Conservatory of Music and Drama with uh, Mary Brennan, my singing teacher. And um, then went, moved to London, studied there at the National Opera Studio, worked in England and the UK for about, I think it was maybe about three or four years and then kind of decided that I wanted to try and have uh, children. Wanted to move home and kind of came home and thought, OK, I'll put it up, put everything on the back burner for a while. Yeah. Started teaching full time in the Conservatory in DIT. Oh, right. And after about six years, kind of thought, hmm, maybe I'll give performing another quite a uh, gap. crack of the whip. Yeah, yeah quite a gap. And, um, you know, had sort of left. And so it was kind of a bit of a risk, you know, because mm-hmm. I was in a you know, permanent pensionable job as my dad used to remind me. And uh, all of a sudden was kind of going, well, I'll, I think I'll just uh, try again, you know. Pursue and, the um, dream once pers- more. Exactly, yeah, exactly. When you
11: go back and you obviously talk to everyone in that world, yeah. do they tell you, yes, this is a brilliant idea or... No,
6: oh, quite gosh. the opposite. Everybody said, you're mad. Um, I was in my 30s. You know what I mean? It's not like... Mm-hmm. I had two children and I uh, but I but there was something it's like um I think when you're a performer that you have something it's like it's in your blood and so it's very hard sure, to yeah. to let it go yeah. and I suppose what I didn't want to do was to kind of get you know 10 years down the line to look back and say oh god I wish I'd given it another go when I you know when I could um, so yeah I just decided to to take the bull by the horns and um and see what happened you what, know? what
11: was different this time?
6: So basically the, the, the most interesting thing I think was that after I had had the two children, my there was a change in my voice. So wow. beforehand, I would have some s- kind of a, like lighter repertoire, you know, sort of not as heavy, not yeah. as dramatic. Um, but then with the physical changes and I guess the emotional changes and just that bit of maturity, um, my voice developed, and um, and so it allowed me, I suppose, to to get into this sort of more nichey repertoire of this sort of very very dramatic singing. Um, it's which, amazing your voice changed yeah yeah so I think it was like fit you know obviously there's lots of physical and hormonal changes during pregnancy and, yeah. and childbirth and then as a mom and uh yeah so that also so actually it was like um you know it was like how I sort of try and explain it to people is like it's like you're getting into it you're have having to learn how to drive a completely different car right so you've been driving right. like a mini yeah and then all of a sudden you get into like a range or it's like some big four by four and you're you're kind of trying and it feels different mm-hmm. and it takes a little bit longer to accelerate and it ta- you know what I mean? So it's just mm. it's about sort of relearning and reworking your voice, I suppose. So there's a kind of is there a depth and a heft yeah. because you're a mum as well is that I, I think so. I think it's just that, that there are all these sort of physical changes that that allow you to I suppose develop a certain, you know, um, sort of element to, to to your voice. So basically to sing this dramatic repertoire you have to be able to project over an orchestra of sometimes like a hundred players of course we 've no microphones we 've no pickups so it's it 's literally just you have to have. Stop a sort of a blade in your voice, like a knife that you're like cutting through sound, like a wall of sound. (laughs) And so I think that just takes a certain amount of maturity and a certain amount of of development, I suppose, to to achieve that. And so you really need it in this, certainly in Salome, where we've got this massive orchestra. And I mean, the music and the, and the the orchestral sort of instrumentation, how he's written it, is just phenomenal. You know, it's a phenomenal piece. Really, like incredible. It's just waves and waves of sound, sort of coming at you. You yeah, know, it's, so it's amazing. To have this it's very exciting.
11: I'd imagine it, when you're the dramatic soprano, mm. there are kind of limited roles, aren't there? Because there are limited places that someone can get. So the competition is is beyond fierce.
6: Um, it it is, but at the same time, it there. I suppose there are less of us around. Do you know what I mean? So there's like. Lots and I, I would say probably small, pre- predominantly yeah like a lot of there'd be an awful lot of like say lyric sopranos so um, you know I, I don't know if you know like there's a very famous Puccini opera La Boheme so like Mimi in yes. this in this would be like that sort of a role or Violetta in Traviata for example yeah. so they'd be more sort of light lyric lyric roles and then you've got you go into the dramatic spe- sphere which is like Strauss and Wagner and sort of more hefty sort of Puccini roles so it is kind of a smaller pool Um, So in that way, the sort of like it benefited me because, of course, coming back into the business after such a massive break, like... Every, you know I'm sure everyone's like who's this one you know can't remember don't and know to be so su-
11: successful because you're you're a big noise uh, across the continent um, in the opera circles Well
6: I mean I don't know <laughs> <laughs>
11: You're not allowed to say that So <laughs> it's, it's mean, great that you're having the homecoming because you're I from know, it's You're been from great. Wexford Yes Yeah from Wexford and, um, yeah, yeah. Salome is going to be in, in Wexford
6: uh, It is It's in Wexford We'll have a concert performance in Wexford on the 3rd Sunday the 3rd of March in the National Opera House um, So it'll be absolutely fantastic yeah to be, to, to be there it's to sing building, for yeah. yeah it's amazing and then we have the three shows 12th, 14th and 16th of March in the Gosh Energy Theatre um, which I think is an absolutely incredible space for this particular piece because it, as I said, it, acoustically, it's just going to be phenomenal. And The gigantic stage. Yes, exactly, yes. and um, and also it, worth pointing out to people is that you know the way sometimes people think, oh, God, opera—it's very sort of long and boring—and mm. this is ninety minutes long. Oh, this right, no interval, ninety minutes, it's and it's a tight opera. It's tight. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't feel like it, I'm sure, when you're dancing on your own. <laughs> and uh, and it, but it's it's um it's literally a roller coaster. You just from start to finish. It's just like and I think it'll just have people pinned to their seats. That's, it sounds great. Yeah.
0: Soprano Sinead Campbell-Wallace on The Oliver Callan Show. RTE was in the headlines again today and one of the main stories was the publication of legal advice in relation to the confidentiality of exit payments paid to former senior executives who left the organisation over the last eight years. Solicitors Arthur Cox say there would be civil and criminal consequences from disclosing the information and RTE Director General Kevin Backhurst joined Brian Dobson on the News at One to discuss.
7: Um, so the advice from the solicitors, and you asked them to, to revisit the issue in, in, in recent weeks, is, and I quote, that the publication of such information would contravene employees' contractual and statutory rights, thereby exposing RTE to avoidable legal challenge. We must advise you to exercise extreme caution. Now, that's the advice from the lawyers. It's your job to make the decision. What is your decision on foot of that
3: advice? My decision is, uh, I went back to Arthur Cox to ask them for renewed Uh, legal advice we had initial legal advice uh, in october last year which we also published which was very similar to this actually but i asked them to look at uh, the legal advice in the light of um, the 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 request we were getting you know from a number of uh, bodies and politicians um, to see if we could release some of this information to see if there was any way to drive further transparency i think this legal advice is the most most robust and the clearest legal advice that I've received in my career. And you just read out some of it, Brian. Um, uh, so, you know, I genuinely think unless I, you know, if I, unless I would to take a decision that in my role, um, that I would be deliberately going out and breaking the law, um, I need to adhere to this legal advice. So I think the key thing for me is can I find other ways of driving transparency, and particularly looking forward, are there other things we need to do um, to ensure that you know, we can um, exit people from the organisation, but in a way that satisfies the need for transparency and oversight. Right. But just to be clear
7: about this, based on this legal advice, it is, it is RT will not be releasing details of these exit packages going back to 2016?
3: I think we're completely unable to. Um, you know, and I know there's a lot of pressure early in the week um, to do that, but I, I think people will have seen this legal advice. I think people will appreciate, um, as a public organisation, we cannot be in the business of breaking the law and going against very clear legal advice. And it's not just breaking the law, it's about the you know, potential liability that I could expose RT to if I were to do this. And I'm you know, i I'm, I'm also strongly the view that I don't think I'd get agreement from the board to break the law deliberately and in the face of this legal advice. What you say you have done is written to these individuals
7: asking them to waive confidentiality. Now, at this stage, have you had any replies?
3: Uh, we only sent the letters out yesterday, so we were waiting for those replies. Um, you know, I, I should say, I, you know, I want to explore every avenue of doing this. I don't want expectations to get very high because, um, you know, that, that is entirely their gift to mm-hmm. waive their confidentiality. Um, and if it, some of them agree
7: to do that, will you publish those names and details then?
3: If they agree to waive the confidentiality, clearly that would be in a, a way we can publish some of those um, details. That's one of the only avenues that we can pursue as to some of these payments going back to 2016. Right. And
7: sorry, does, would that have to be uh, in the case of all the individuals, or could you release uh, details in relation to those individuals who might be willing to allow that to happen? I'm just thinking mm. of the process of elimination here. That mm. other people who want to maintain their confidentiality mm. might have that breached by that process.
3: Yeah, we'd have to look at that very carefully. I mean, you know, I think the initial advice is if individuals come back uh, and say that they are willing to waive confidentiality, mm. then we obviously we look at the way that we can release that and that would be my intention, yeah. You see, there's another piece of advice from from Arthur Cox in these documents
7: you've released today in relation to this because they say that if RTE was to seek the consent of relevant staff members to release the information, um, data protection guidance clarifies, and I'm quoting from the document here, as a general rule, the GDPR prescribes that if the data subject has no real choice, feels compelled to consent or will endure negative consequences if they do not consent, then consent will not be valid. Now, in these circumstances, where we have a clamour for information, government ministers, doyle committees, um, uh, others looking for this data to be released, can these people
3: give valid consent? Uh, my understanding is that they can individually give that consent. If they want to, they can waive mm-hmm. their rights um, to this. Um, but you're right to point out the wider considerations. And the wider considerations are really important from top to bottom of any organisation this isn't just the rights of senior people i would expect you know the to respect i would expect to offer the the, the exactly the same protection to anyone from you know the highest paid to the lowest paid in this organisation as as set out in law
7: right um just in in relation to some of the the context of of all of this um why in July last year, Mr. Backhurst, did you say that Rory Coveney, quote, didn't get a payment going out the door, but he did get, quote, statutory level kind of payments? Why did you say that when it's reported he got a full year salary?
3: Well, when I said that, what is that? What I, what I, I was answering a series of questions in a, in a big press scrum on day one in the job. Mm-hmm. Um, I was trying to be as accurate as I can within the realms of, of the confidentiality that's made clear here that he deserves. Um, And statutory level, and it made this maybe a a throwback to coming from the UK, but statutory level would normally mean a week for every year of service Mm -hmm. in my understanding. So I was trying to give an idea that he did get paid, um, but not an extortionate amount without giving the exact details. So, I was trying to tread a careful line between being as open as I possibly could in the circumstances, but trying to respect what's been laid out in these legal issues. We, we did a quick back-of-the-envelope mm. calculation
7: here. I wouldn't want to stand mm. over this uh, other than to say that uh, it's an indication of what a statutory-level payment here would mean mm. because it would be capped, and it would be less than €20,000.
3: Yeah, so I think that maybe that's where uh, you know I maybe misspoke alive mm. in a live in It so the my, impression was of a very, mm. a
7: very modest payment to somebody who was resigning, and that was the way this, his departure was presented.
3: Yeah, look, I... I'd, that's not what I intended at the time. What I meant was, you know, the statutory levels I understood it was you would get a week for every year been here. Mm. Rory had been here for 16 years. Um, so it was, you know, around mm. that level, it wasn't a, a huge kind of payment to walk out the door, considering the length of service that any individual. Um, had done that length of well, service. well. He was the director expect- of the organisation, so I, he was mm. on presumably a, a substantial
7: six-figure salary, uh, and a, a year's salary for someone mm. in that position is is a substantial amount of money.
3: Yeah, I'm not I'm not undermining that. I'm just saying that uh, you know it would be in the level of, you know, what I would expect uh, within legal guidelines of. You know, getting a a week for every year you've done, or whatever, for any individual, whatever amount of salary they're on. Do you
7: accept now that agreeing to a confidentiality clause in the case of Rory Coveney and it would seem Richard Collins was a mistake?
3: No, because that is, I think again, as it says in this Arthur Co- Cox letter here, um, in these type of settlement agreements. Now, whether that's RT or whether it's an, any other semi-state, who many of the semi-states have a track record of having to use these kind of agreements to exit people, or whether it's a commercial organisation who do the same. These kind of legal agreements are the the norm. Um, mm. And as Arthur Cox say, confidentiality clauses are routinely used mm. in these agreements. When you go through a legal process, you agree the amount of money, you agree, you know, ideally agree a, a statement that respects the dignity of the individual. And part of that is confidentiality. And if you don't agree confidentiality, confidentiality the likelihood is... You cannot achieve a legal settlement.
7: But these weren't routine circumstances or conditions that you were operating mm. in. There was, had We just had the, the Dáil committees uh, over the summer. Uh, there'd been the revelation in relation to Breda O'Keefe. I think at that stage maybe you were getting ready to, to commission the, the, the investigation into that. So There was a clamour for information. You must have known the details of the Coveney and Collins exit packages would at some stage be sought.
3: Yes, and indeed they would at some stage. In fact, they'll be given in the annual report, as they have been every year in terms of exit packages, in a way that is legally um, achievable. And those are reported annually every year. It's really important to say, going back to 2016, the overall figure for the senior executives who've left have been reported as a matter of routine in the annual report. But and the Brito-Keefe, sorry to a question, mm. the
7: Brito-Keefe number was wrong. It was, was uh, 50,000 less than she actually well, got. Well, I
3: think they've explained that in terms of... Rounding you know, down. Well, or rounding up. I mean, rounding well, rounded down in that case, or rounding up, but I think that's been explained as, a, as an accountancy
7: thing. So will confidentiality clauses continue to be a
3: feature of exit arrangements in RTE? Well, this is what I've asked, um, this is what I say we need to take legal advice on, and I had some initial conversations with Arthur Cox about this. Um, You know, and there are very wide ramifications if you don't, if you're unable to use those. So I think what we need to ensure is that there's an absolute, you know, there is a transparency around the circumstances in which we can use those and where we do use those. Because I think if we're unable to use those, again, going back to the advice from Arthur Cox and our legal advice is these are routinely used across Ireland because employment law in Ireland absolutely rightly gives a very high level of protection to anyone in employment, whether that's at a junior or at a senior level, it is very difficult to sorry, Brian, it's very difficult to exit people, to sack people. So therefore you often have to go through a legal process and confidentiality agreements and it's this is not just RTE, this is across the piece. These are used uh, commonly, or as as Arthur Cox say, routinely in reaching agreements where lawyers or mediation are involved.
7: RT, of course, is a publicly funded organisation. Will in future there be a cap
3: on exit packages, a limit? Well, again, this is something, and this is, you know, I, I in discussions with the Minister, I said we would look at the use of confidentiality agreements. Ideally, they would become um, very much the exception with the right framework around them. Um, and the same goes for a cap. But again, there are ramifications for that. If you put a cap on exit payments and you are going through a period which will have to have shrinking the organisation, you will end up unduly get, um, shrinking the organisation by losing junior colleagues because you can't afford to pay off more senior people, whether it's under an exit scheme or whatever else, to go. So I don't want, you know, we need to work through. There are very significant ramifications to addressing out of these. I'm very prepared to try and address them, but they're not going to be straightforward.
0: RTE Director General Kevin Backhurst on the News at One. Executives from the Platform X, formerly known as Twitter, had a private meeting with members of the Oireachtas yesterday and one Labour Party senator spoke directly to them about the awful abuse she's had to deal with online. Senator Annie Hoey spoke to Anya Lawler about it on Morning Ireland.
4: Well, I won't obviously say the exact words because um, we're live on radio and some of them will be beyond unsuitable. But, you know, I'm much like any woman or woman in politics certainly or any woman i think online would have received more than a, a any reasonable amount of disparaging comments about my weight um what i look like an, an extended amount of expletives um under what could be a very innocuous post, sometimes a post about uh, maybe another minority group. Sometimes I wouldn't even be uh, the main proprietor of the post. I wouldn't be the main person in it. I would happen to be in the background, for example, of a colleague's picture or something, and people would hone in on me, on my appearance, what I look like. Very, very violent language, very, very angry language, um, calling everything into account for my appearance, my intelligence, what... Actually, not so much what I do, surprisingly, which to me is probably the only thing that should be open uh, open day is, you know, maybe call into my politics account. But actually, it was always very personal stuff, my sexual orientation, a- anything that you could reasonably think of with a-, a number of expletives around it that would be said. I don't... And it's not exclusive to X slash Twitter, but that is where I found that the commentary and mm-hmm. the abuse became mm-hmm. so much. And, and and I'm a minority opposition backbend senator. No one really knows who I am. So I can't imagine what the, the, the comment section or replies are like for other people. Right. I had really good filters on where I would barely see I would barely actually myself see some of these things. It would be other people would text me. I'd wake up in the morning and, you know, on more than one occasion would have text messages in my phone being like, Jesus, I saw what they were saying last night to you. Don't mind them. You're better than that. And I'd be like, oh, my God, what were they saying? And then I'd have to go in and look. Yeah. And that happened, you know, that was happening um, I, I, you know once is difficult enough on more than one occasion that was happening and that's very difficult yeah. for my friends and family it was horrible for my staff having to look at some of these things um, and we just ended up taking a decision and yesterday actually only shorted up for me that platform is doing infinitely more harm than good certainly for myself right. and people people around me and i know look, be i, I know it's it. a
12: breakfast program and but but there's um you were talking to the irish independent about this the words i can read out on air are fat dribbling moron uh, you were mm-hmm. also called a cancer various yep. f words b words c words i mean you're a politician you're used to the rough and tumble as you say you try not to look at a lot of this but but the impact on you How did it make you feel as a woman? How vulnerable?
4: Like, you can kind of brush these things off and, you know, laugh and read them out and be like, oh, they called me this, that and the other. But sometimes when you do step back, you're like, those are people writing those actual words and they're about myself. And it's, you know, you can say, oh, I won't pay any attention to them, don't mind them we're all human as well at the end of the day, you know, and people use really evocative things that should be done to women. Um, I am a survivor of sexual assault. And when people use that language that should be done to me, or I see people talking about that for other women, a really violent, heinous act, that to me is just unconscionable and deplorable that Mm -hmm. people would A, use that language in any way that should be done to another person. As I said, I have come through that. And that they would then use that language to try and demonize other minorities and say that because I advocate for kindness and compassion to other human beings, that that should be done to me or other women. That is... That is no way for people to live their lives. It's no way for me to live my life, for my staff to live their lives, for my family to live their lives, to see those things being written about myself and other women. And nobody has the right,
12: the fact of the matter, nobody has the right to abuse anyone else in any forum uh, in that way. When you complained, did you complain? Were those posts taken down? And what did X say when, when you brought this to their attention yesterday?
4: So, I mean you know, we would be people in my office and myself be pressing the report button, report button, report button. Like you kind of lose yourself hours of your life pressing report. And don't forget, not all of these posts would I perhaps have even been tagged in. Yeah. So you'd have to go hunting for these things to try and find what people were saying. And that is also enough to drive any human being demented. Um, sometimes posts were taken down. Very often they're still floating around the place. Perhaps the accounts might have been deleted, um, you know, because they, they were probably posting across yeah. the site on things. Um, but you know, I very often saw, you know, the 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 flag coming up saying this post does not violate our X, Y, and Z rules. And you're like, for goodness sakes. Um and that's very frustrating. Mm-hmm. And I did raise that yesterday at X. I appreciate that those officials you know, there's billions of tweets on that site. Don't know every individual tweet, nor can they respond to in every individual tweet. So I, I, I recognise yeah. that. But you know, the response was like, well, you have our emails, so you could maybe, you know, you could, you could take it further. And my, my big issue with all of this is that it's not being dealt with at source. Is that the onus is put on okay. the person who is receiving this language and these very graphic things being said about them harmful things is that I then have to go and report it and then if their systems don't work I then have to go and email them and see okay. what recourse there can be and I just think these things you know we can the owner of this um website is looking to set up space colonies for goodness sake how can the the machine learning and the AI not be developed enough well that's to my next question for you and,
12: and and briefly if you would please um you know, the, the commitments were given, you know, the, uh, the hate speech uh, legislation when it's passed would be implemented. But we know that Elon Musk in the past has spoken directly against this himself. He's even taken the trouble to tweet about it. So do you think, I mean, what was your reaction to those commitments from the ex-executives yesterday given that?
4: Well, I mean, I did also raise that in terms of, you know, he has offered to pay a judicial fee if someone wants to take a case against our hate speech laws. So I do struggle to see how an organisation can stand over their commitment to uh, protecting against hate speech when the owner himself has said that he opposes implementation of hate speech laws. You know, those two things don't necessarily go hand in hand in my perspective. Um, so it's, it's hard to see... I don't think any of us left that meeting, and I left early because I I just hadn't had enough. Can re, you know? I don't think people left there imbued with confidence that the 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 terrorizing and the abuse that happens on that site is going to disappear anytime soon. I left with an even further commitment to no longer engage with that site. but we'll keep the handle so that someone doesn't impersonate me, but we won't be putting anything on it going on forward. It's not worth the hassle, it's not worth my staff's time, and it's not worth uh, watching other women be dragged through the mud. So I think, on a principle, we won't be using it anymore.
0: Labour Senator Annie Hoey speaking to Onya Lawler on Morning Ireland. There was definitely a bit of a spring feeling in the air today despite the cold temperatures and there's already some signs of plants and buds growing around the place. On Today with Claire Byrne, the host was joined by Aideen Neithirny, who runs Blohona Fiena walking tours on Inishmán to chat about what wildflowers should we be looking out for at this time of year.
9: Now, the flower that we're going to talk about first is really known as the hardiest flower of them all. It doesn't look like the hardiest flower of them all. It appears first in the springtime and it's the primrose.
2: It is the primrose and it's such a tough little flower. As you say, it's so gentle looking, those creamy, pale yellow petals and, you know, they're kind of um, characteristic wrinkly leaves. They're so gentle and soft and sweet looking, but really they're tough as nails. And we can find them from as early as late January. But particularly now, as you said, we would a little bit of a more temperate, kind of mild temperature the last few days and I've really even seen it just in the last week there's so many more gorgeous primroses in our woodlands and hedgerows and fields
9: just waiting to be enjoyed yeah they they are a lovely flower and a real sign of spring but even before we come to the primroses we have the the snowdrops i mean they're the toughest guys of all right
2: well, they are, but I always say I'm a bit biased in terms of I love the, the real wild, the real native plants to Ireland. So snowdrops, of course, they are naturalised and they've been here for hundreds and hundreds of years. So I'm a bit snobby saying maybe that I prefer the primrose because it's been here even longer than that. But of course, the pr- snowdrops have their own distinctive charm. And like I say, we can find really, really old colonies of them in their thousands in places like graveyards and old churches. And of course, the snow Oh, drop. I mean, it's got the scientific backup to be as tough as it can be because it's actually got a natural antifreeze that sometimes people don't know about. We see these photos of the snowdrops peeping out of the actual snow and ice, and how they manage to do that is they have this natural antifreeze proteins in the flower that prevent the growth of ice crystals. So they've really evolved over time to be and to be able to to stand those low sub-zero temperatures. One thing that I always find amazing is that people actually used to harvest snowdrops for that reason. They saw them and they were inspired and they thought, how can we get the use out of this? So in World War One, they actually harvested them and they used that kind of protein to coat tank engines. So It's kind of bizarre when you think of something so pure and beautiful as the snowdrop being used kind of as a weapon of war, but it was.
9: Yeah, well, we, we do know, don't we, that flowers have very many uses other than the obvious one where they make us feel better when we look at them and we smell. I mean primroses have been used for other things too over the years haven't they?
2: Of course. I mean, every plant. And what I always say is the best plants you can talk about, the best plants you can learn about are the most common because if something is really common and readily available, it's more likely that people would have used it long ago. So for things like the primroses that are all around us, they're so beautiful, but they were also used for treating a lot of skin conditions. So some people would use them for treating things like eczema, they would be made into a balm. And they were also well known um, as a cure for treating burns. and they will be made into a balm and that will be treated to, to soothe the skin and as I say I do their walking tours here in Inishmian and actually what's amazing is I hear from people how they're using the plants and I've heard from people who even in recent times have been using the primroses for this purpose and found great results.
9: Mm-hmm. And of course they're used to decorate cakes I mean they do look beautiful on top of a lemon cake don't they?
2: Oh, that is my favourite thing to do. And I always say, especially for people with smallies at home, if you're kind of grappling with ideas, what am I going to do this weekend to keep the kids occupied? A really nice thing to do. And I suppose you could do it yourself. You don't need kids at all. It's nice for everyone. Go out and collect some primroses and bring them in. Like I say, they're gorgeous for cupcakes. They're gorgeous on top of a lemon meringue and they're edible. So even though there's not a very strong taste of them, I always say and everyone often says too, you eat with your eyes. So what's going to be t- a cupcake plain or a cupcake with a beautiful primrose on top. Mm-hmm. But if you are harvesting them, I always say, and the kind of rule of thumb would be always to leave maybe two thirds of the flowers left for other foragers, but even like foragers like the bees and the okay, flowers that's, and the good That's a good, that's a good rule
9: too. to remember because um, especially when we're very young and maybe very eager, we can take them all, which isn't a good idea.
2: No, definitely not. And always as well to leave the plant in the ground. Just take the petals and the stems. They don't ever go near the roots if you can avoid it, um, is a good rule of thumb. Okay, so
9: we have people eating our primroses now. Um, What other tasty wild treats should we be looking for, Aideen?
2: So one of my favourite things and another foraging staple that's in Plentiful at the moment is sorrel. So well-seasoned foragers will know this, as I say, it's one of our staples. But it's a gorgeous one to get into if you're thinking of just dipping your toe into the wild food pool. So sorrel, and in Ishmael we have a gorgeous name for this, we call it an hopog villish. So the chopoog people might know from their their youth is actually the dock leaf. But the hopog millish then is the sweet dock. So it's related to the dock leaf, but it's a much smaller leaf. It's an edible leaf and it's got a really punchy, juicy, citrusy taste. It's really, really nice. And anyone who grew up in the countryside would probably remember picking this in the summertime and having a nibble of it as you were walking the roads or anything like that. They kind of say too that like this is what Fionn and the Fienna back in the
0: day in the woodlands. This would have been a huge part of their diet. AD Nithirnig from Blohona Fienna walking tours on Inishman speaking to Claire Byrne today. And that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily. So from me, Louise Herity, thanks for listening and take care.